guidance. God, we do pray that you'd use uh, this time um, to continue to draw us to yourself, to teach us. Uh, honestly, frustrated Sunday that this was <laughs> going to be required or necessary. Um, but today, just thankful that you've um, helped me to see things possibly the way that you see them. So help me to trust you even now that perhaps I need to hear this again. Maybe somebody in this room is to hear it again. So we pray that this second time as we look at your word and in a sense reheat the everlasting truths in here, we pray that we would again be nourished by them, that uh, we'd be challenged, that we would be better husbands, that we'd be better fathers, that we'd be better um, disciples, and that we would say as a result, be able to say in others of us, that we are more like our, our Lord and Savior Jesus as a result of these truths. So I pray that we find confidence in you and... Uh, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I just want to explain a little bit about why the children are in here today. You might be wondering why um, we see an extra few um, children hanging around. Well, today is Fifth Family Sunday, as you heard Brett mention not that long ago. And I just want to take a moment and address that just for a moment. So um, the physical family of God, we are that, but we are also the spiritual family of God. So children, look around. All these adults that you see by their presence here this morning by their singing, by their praying, by their listening, and even as they partake in communion, they are proclaiming the gospel to you. And so I want you to hear that. Do you, do you see that? They're proclaiming that Jesus is their Lord, that he is everything to them. The gospel is everything. And adults, I know that you know that you're saying that. Each of us, we, we are saying that truly with our lives, that Jesus is everything to us. We proclaim the Lord's death, the gospel until he comes. Jesus told us that we should do that. And so at the end of the service today, we'll partake in communion. And in that, we are remembering and being nourished by the truths that Jesus has died for our sins. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. He rose again the third day. And in those truths, we find life. And so I want to just encourage you as you sing, as you pray, as you hear the word preached, as you partake in communion, that we are proclaiming to one another, the body of Christ, that these, uh, that these things are true and that we need them. So anyway, moving on, uh, last week we looked at the death of Moses and we saw the installment of Joshua as the new leader that God had called to lead Israel. So God calls him, last week we looked at Joshua 1, he calls him to be strong and courageous. And Joshua is strong and courageous. And uh, he, he actually spent, sends new spies to go out into the land. And, and in the, the, the text that we read this past week, he crosses over the Jordan as a group. He builds a memorial to Yahweh there on the bank, uh, on the west side there. Uh, he, he, he has the entire uh, nation of Israel circumcised. And this is the most beautiful thing. They celebrate the Passover together for the first time in the land that God had promised hundreds of years beforehand. So it's a wonderful thing. They've been looking forward to this. And now they're celebrating the Passover, remembering what God had done all the way back in Egypt and all the things, all the miracles that he had done up until that point and looking forward to what God would do in hope in the future as he would continue to help give them the land and, and place it into their hand. So they take Passover for the first time. There they are encamped and not far from the fortified city of Jericho. And that's where this week's sermon picks up. So Joshua chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, then just go ahead and turn there. And we'll read most of the chapter together. Joshua chapter 6, verses 1, all the way down to verse 25. And so these are the words of the Lord. Let's read them. Verse number 1, the Bible says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, and thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout together with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And so Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant. And, the, and, the, and let seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make any voice heard, neither shall any word come out of your mouth until the day that I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. And so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and then came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the, before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned to the camp, and so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose up early, at the dawn of the day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves for, from things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, or when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, and bring out there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron. And, and they put them in the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? 
God, we thank you for this text that you've given us today to look at. We pray that as we sift through it, as we try to understand that your spirit would enlighten us, that it would encourage us, that it would grow us in this text, Father, we would understand more about you, that we would understand more about ourselves, and that as a result of this, we would walk circumspectly, that we would walk in truth in a, in a, in a way that pleases you. And we ask that these things be done not for our glory, but for yours, and we ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this idea of competition. So competition is really a, truly a wonderful thing. We, here we are at the end of March Madness, and we love to pit one team against another to see which one truly is better. Opening day took place just this past week, or just this week, as a matter of fact. And uh, we, many of us are more, more than others, maybe, uh, are excited about seeing two teams, one against the other. Which one's best? Which, which college basketball team is best? Which athlete is best? One-on-one, -on -one, one against one. Which one's better? So we like to compare. I want to take that idea of competition, and I'm going to look at this text this morning. There's a couple ideas that are, in a sense, competing. We want to compare the two. Which one's better? Which one's stronger? As we write it out, if you're taking notes, you can use the, the greater than symbol, so the little alligator mouth. You know that alligator mouth from third grade, and they, they said, you, you point that alligator mouth to the bigger thing. So which one's greater, 14 or 15? Well, the 15's better, and so we put the, that alligator mouth pointing towards the 15. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Which is better? The first one I want to look at, the first question is, which is better, the presence of God or the plans of men? Now, the plans of men are, are, are great. Oftentimes we use the, the plans of the world, or we use just common knowledge, common sense to make certain decisions, and they can be very helpful. But when pitted against the presence of God, which one is greater? By far, it's the presence of God. And so that's my first point this morning as I look at this text. And so if you're taking notes, the presence of God is greater than the plans of men. Look back at verse 1. The Bible says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. It's obvious that the people of Jericho were afraid. So see, the gates were closed. They closed up shop. Nobody's going. Nobody's coming. Everybody outside that's living on the outskirts, they're all inside the city. They're afraid of what's taking place. They're, the Israelites are in a very good place right now. As a matter of fact, when the two spies visited, do you remember what Rahab said to them? If you look back in chapter 2, and verse 11, it says, uh, Rahab says this, And as soon as we heard it, speaking of the, the, the folks that live in Jericho, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any of us. Because of you, for the Lord your God, he is a God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And so the, the, the children or the, the folks that lived there in Jericho, um, they were terribly afraid. And really, that's exactly where Israel wanted them. It's exactly, they're feeling on top of the world. They're feeling, feeling very good. They automatically be thinking, oh, they're right where we want them. What should we do next? Maybe they're thinking we should go ahead and launch this extended siege and, and, not, and continue to not let anybody come or go. And we'll see how long they can last. We'll get that city. We'll defeat this enemy this way. Maybe they're thinking they should go get, build some ladders and maybe cut down some trees and, 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 and get over the, these large walls that way. Maybe they're thinking of creating a battering ram or creating, making some trebuchets and launching a large objects inside the city. This is the thought of man. This, these are good ideas. But the Bible tells us that God's thoughts are not always our thoughts, or that our thoughts are not always his, rather. So Joshua naturally probably wanted to use large weapons and proven military strategy. 
There's nothing wrong with those types of things unless they contradict with what God has called us to do. And that is exactly what happened here. God, God didn't give them instructions to use these typical methods. He gives them something totally different. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why he told them that they're to take armed men and march around the city once a day for six successive days with priests continually blowing, blowing on the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant in between them. And then on the seventh day, they're to circle Jericho seven times and the wall of Jericho would collapse as they shout. There's a reason why God would tell them to do that. Now, if you put yourself in Joshua's situation, you might see uh, that this is a little bit strange, but not only is it strange, but it's difficult to enable or to enact. We look back on this story and we see this is a cool story. It's really interesting how God did this. So it's not scary after you've already seen it take place. Imagine being Joshua on that day. You're going to abandon the camp. You're going to leave your women and children back at the house, right? Nobody to protect them. You're going to put yourself in harm's way and march around the city where you could easily have things thrown on you and, and be attacked from above. Yet that's what God calls them to do. What are they going to do? He has to make a decision here. He's at a crossroads. He has to decide, is he going to follow the plans of men or is he going to lean into the presence of God? Just as Joshua was strong and courageous, and crossing over into the Jordan, we see that he again follows God's instructions here. There was a decision to be made. You think about Achan, he chose his own path. This passage doesn't tell us about it, but in the very next chapter we learn of a man by the name of Achan who was a part of this uh, attack. And as everything was devoted to God... And they were instructed to not, take every, to not to take anything. And everything was to be destroyed, except for what was taken and devoted and given to God in the temple. He can disobey that. You can see why he might be interested in that. Perhaps Achan had been looking at his 401k that week and realizing that he wasn't going to have enough to retire. He wasn't going to be, and maybe he's getting old, and so he needed that. And you can, can you really fault a guy for trying to pad his retirement and, and retire well? Maybe he began to think about not being able to take care of his children or whatever it was. Possibly he was just being selfish. But either way, he followed the instruct the plans of men instead of leaning into the presence of God. A similar thing befalls the, the ten spies who choose their own path. They choose their own logic, their own uh, thinking. As they walk into Israel for the first time, as they cross over Jordan 40 years prior, and they disobey God, they don't believe him. And they recognize that the fortified cities and the, and the tall giants that live in the land are too strong for them. Man's logical plans are okay until they come into con conflict with the plans of God. And so what were God's plans for Joshua? What were God's plans for here in Jericho? Why would he call them to do such unorthodox methods? I would say this. It's to demonstrate the power of his presence. It's to demonstrate the power of of his presence. What was made clear in this strange set of instructions was that God's presence was greater than man's plans. We see that this is demonstrated most clearly in the, the presence of the ark. It, it played a very big role in this attack. But what was the ark? What was the ark of God, the ark of the covenant? Well, it symbolized the very presence of God. Think about that. It symbolized the very presence of God. That old wooden ark was said to be the seat of Yahweh. That, that, that ark was a, a wooden box covered with gold and it had a chest with a lid and where cherubims were on top. 
And inside, as the lid would be removed, were the very tablets of the law that God had instructed earlier Moses to place inside. So at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses places, uh, make sure that the, the law is inside of the testimony, or, or the testimony is inside the ark, and then he dies. And so we see there that the ark is two things. It's both the presence of God, and because the law's in there, it also rem- represents the, the obedience of God's people. And so the relationship between these two, they're, they, you can't separate them. They're, they're so strong together. They're almost one and the same. The presence of God and the obedience of God's people. So what does it mean to have God's presence in your life? What does it mean to say that God, that, that you have the very presence of God in your life? If you ever have ever noticed somebody and you said something's different about that person, I, I can't put my finger on it, but the, the relationship that they have with the Lord Jesus is very strong. I would dare say... And it's probably because of the faithful obedience to God. Because the pre- in order to have the presence of God, you've got to have obedience to God. Walking with the Lord. That's what this is. It's a biblical truth. To obey the Lord is to walk with Him. How can two walk together unless they be in agreement, the Bible asks. These are the two options. Obey God or the other is to rebel. And oftentimes, by the way, I'm going to just throw this out there, our rebellion is caused by fear. We know that that's the case with the ten spies who dis, would, would re- rejected the idea of them taking the land. They disobeyed God. Why? Because of fear. And maybe that's why Achan chose his path as well. We don't know. But either way, oftentimes our rebellion is caused by fear. These two, just as the presence of God and the obedience to his law are, are one and the same, so is rebellion and fear. They go hand in hand. And so this is another contrast that I want you to look at this morning. Faithful obedience is greater than fearful rebellion. Faithful obedience is greater than fearful rebellion. And that's directly related to the relationship or, or to the presence of God being greater than the plans of men. Remember the, the anxiety. Try to imagine what the people, the children of Israel, the, the armed men, the anxiety that they would be faced with as they marched around the city with their families utterly exposed and them themselves vulnerable to attack. But they had faith in God. Their obedience to God was clear. Now, in the face of fear, mind you. These weren't, these weren't foolish men. They knew the dangers that were at hand. And yet they trusted in God. They, obe- they obeyed God the Father. Sometimes it's easy to obey, and other times it is not so easy. Imagine having to be quiet for 30 minutes. We've got kids in here this morning, so imagine trying to be quiet, kids, for 30 minutes. That's almost impossible, right? You're even getting restless right now, some of you. It's, it's intense. It's difficult. We want to run when we're told to walk. We want to talk when we're told to be quiet. Adults, parents, we know the, we know the, the drill. We're not so, uh, we, we wrestle with different instructions now. Sometimes we're told to shout in victory, but we want to sigh in defeat. Did you notice Joshua tells them to shout on the seventh day? That shout is not a shout of of, of war. It's a shout of victory. It's a shout of jubilee. They're celebrating. Even though they haven't tasted the victory yet, they're shouting in faith that God would give them the victory. Even you, Christian, is that something that you're leaning into today? The fact that God has said that we will overcome, that we will be more than conquerors, 
That we will be sanctified. We will grow in holiness. Are you claiming that this morning? Are you walking in defeat? Are you sighing under the pressure of this world? Are you in faith and obedience calling out, even though you don't feel it? One of the things that we say around here, there's a big difference between faith and fake. God's called us to have faith. We want to move forward in that. That's not the same as being fake. We believe the truth even when we don't feel it. Believe what God has called us to do. We believe that he will give these things that he's given to us, or told us he would, into our hand. So God is calling us to simple and faithful obedience. Look back at verse 2. Given them into your hand. What does that mean? Hand, in, 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 in the Old Testament here, it's a reference to power. That God has given them into our power. In a sense, he's placed them on our level. He's taken it from the top shelf, something that we can't reach, something that we can't obtain, and he's placed it on a lower level. So imagine that you and your current state are drafted by the Nationals. And uh, you're first at bat. you're, You're kicking and screaming the entire time, and yet they grab you and they put you on the team. They give you a uniform. You're going to take Bryce Harper's place. They bring you up and they put you at bat. Your first at-bat is against Jordan Hicks. His first ever major league pitch was clocked at 101 miles per hour. He's not a joke. That ball hit you, it cripples you. As you step into the batter's box, you're nervous, but you're obeying what you've been told to do. And so you, in faith, you step in there and you're thinking, okay, I'm supposed to take Bryce's place. You may have a purer heart, but you're not going to have a, <laughs> you're not gonna have a, a, a strong a, a bat, but maybe we'll see. Right before the wine, right before the pitcher puts his foot on the mound, a, a pause is called, a timeout. Rob Manfred he comes onto the onto the field and he's the commissioner of baseball. Mr. Manfred he walks out to you on the field and he sets a t-ball stand right on home plate. He walks out to to Mr. Hicks and he grabs the baseball from him and he walks back to you. He gives the the the, the umpire a knowing look and he sets that ball right there on the tee. And as he does, he calls the ball or the, the game back into play. What has he done there? What has Mr. Manfred done? Well, he's, he's changed the rules. Yes, he's cheated. But what he's done is he's put the game into your hands. He's placed the victory on a shelf that you can reach. In fact, as you ste- step into that batter's box, you say, I know it's not possible, but I'm trusting in what I've been called to do. As we transition into real life, We've got to do that. We've got to do what God, we've got to step into what God has called us to do. It doesn't mean that the cities aren't going to be fortified. It doesn't mean the men won't, the, the enemy won't be big. All those things are true. But what, all, what is also true is that God has given them into our hands. So Christian, what is it that God has called you to do this morning? Maybe it's to, 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 to shepherd your children in your home and to, to lead them to a, a saving knowledge of Christ, to, to, to lead them to know and love Jesus. You say, that's too difficult for me. That's something I can't do. It's out of my hand. And yet God has said he's given it into our hands. Maybe it's walking in holiness. You say, I can't walk in holiness. I can't, I can't lay this sin down. I can't, I can't lead my family because I can't even lead myself. And yet Jesus this morning calls out to you and says that he has placed these things into our hand. Not of our own power. Not of our own works of righteousness. But according to his mercy, he has saved us. According to the cross, He speaks out of that. He's placed it into our hand. So what is it that you're walking in? What what are you standing in the face of, this fear? Are you choosing to to, to choose fearful rebellion 
or faithful obedience. Remember that the, the ark signified obedience. That's what the ark was, right? Inside of it is the Ten Commandments. So the army is walking with God. They were walking with the law. The Bible often uh, describes obedience to God as walking with him. So walking with the Lord is to obey. And Micah 6, 8 says this, and speaking to really the general, to, to humanity. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God in humble, faithful obedience. I don't know about you, but I want to be honest with you this morning. Time and time again, I lose sight and I try to do things on my own. I'm tempted to, to manipulate the situations that I'm in, to, to take what's not mine, what's not, what's not even mine, and to chase what's not important in life. And I'm, I'm tempted to follow my own plans instead of obeying God's plans that he's clearly given to me. Have you ever experienced that? That, that temptation to, to see, to touch, to take what God has said you should not. Temptation to follow your own path that seems logical to you. Yet God's told you not to. We've, we've seen this year as we've read through Scripture, here, here we are in Joshua. Next week we'll be in Judges. We see time and again that when we follow our own plans, it leads straight to destruction. The children of Israel, they needed God's presence. So they'd have to follow his plan. And that's the same for you. You need God's presence. And in order to receive God's presence, in order to have that, you've got to follow his plan. And I want to warn you, Christian, this morning. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that you are walking with the Lord while you disobey his commands. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that you are walking with the Lord while you are disobeying his commands. You are not walking with him. Rather, you are running from him. So the presence of God is greater than the plans of men. I want to show you another point of contrast here this morning. It has to do with the miracles in this passage. So the, the, the miracles of God, mind you, they're not in competition. But know this, they're not all equal. Some are surely greater than others. By definition, some things are just more impossible than others. So here's what I mean by that. This, this, here it is. The standing home is greater than the fallen wall. The standing home is greater than the fallen wall. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. The fact that God would cause walls to fall is, is utterly amazing. The, the power that's on display is there on display on so many levels. For instance, did you notice that the walls fell flat? The, the idea, if you look back at the Hebrew, it's not saying that they fell out. That from the very foundation, they gave way and fell flat, straight down. Not flat out, flat down. So some people think that there's a weak spot under the wall. And as the army marched by, they loosened and dislodged, even unknowingly, and caused the collapse. Other, others think that there's a, there's a, a wall, or the wall falls because of an earthquake. Still others say that maybe they undermined the wall slightly, even with, with, sho with shovels and tools and things like that. And I, I would reject that one, but what we know, whatever theory you have or camp you fall into, know this, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, caused the wall to fall when they did. Yahweh, the God of Israel, his, the, their, their rescuer, their deliverer, had given them into their hands power there. It's a miracle. 
Also notice the timing. The walls didn't fall earlier, right? They didn't fall a couple weeks ago, and the, and the king is like, I meant to be fixing that, right? Why do you know that drill, right? The, the king's not walking by saying, hey, I meant, I've been meaning to fix that. It's on the list. Don't worry. No, they fell just in time, right at the, at the exact time, and served as a surprise attack. The children, of, the children of Israel were outside waiting. The, the people of Jericho were not, right? They, they didn't recognize they were, they were not ready for battle, and yet that's what takes place. It's the power, the timing. It's just a miracle. But as amazing as that, um, that miracle is, there's another miracle in the passage that is often overlooked, and that's the standing house. The, the standing house represents both a, a physical and a spiritual phenomenon. Let's talk about the, the, the physical side of that. That God in all of his great power would cause the walls to, to collapse flat. It could be just as that he, or, and, and, but leave this one house standing. Imagine the precision and the delicacy that it would take to leave one house standing, stone upon stone, not teeter tottering, not Jenga about to fall over. No, it's standing solid, and not just any house, not just a random house, but the very house of their ally, Rahab. If you were to use dynamite to carve a roadbed through a mountain or were to use an axe to fall a tree that would go right between the house and the garage, you know that those things take skill. They take knowledge. So we see a miracle here that God in all of his power would sustain this one room, this one house from falling. Remember the house that was standing belonged to a Canaanite prostitute. Back in chapter 2, remember, the, the, the spies were rescued, in a sense, from the king of Jericho by this prostitute. When the soldiers came to her home saying, Have you seen these spies? She hid them and was able to get them out of the house another way. Remember, we read verse uh, chapter 2, verse 11 just a moment ago. As soon as we heard it, she said, Our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then she goes on to say, Did you hear it? For the Lord... Your God, by the way, she names Yahweh here. For Yahweh, your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So this wasn't a business transaction for this Canaanite prostitute. Uh, You know, you'll protect us, we'll protect you. That's not what's taking place here. It was more than that. This woman believed in the one true God. So the physical side is that God would keep this house standing, but the spiritual side is that he would rescue from these falsehoods, that she would rescue from uh, from destruction and debauchery, this woman and her house. God would keep spiritually this house standing. He, in another sense, would raise this house up from the rubble. Is another miracle, and I, th- I would say that it's the greatest. She believed in Yahweh, and God gave her that faith. He changed her life. He took her heart of stone and he gave her a heart of flesh, just like Abraham, regardless of her past. Remember Abraham, a pagan man as well, living in a foreign country, worshiping a different God and maybe many of them. Just like Abraham, regardless of her past, she was saved by faith in the living God and even became a part of the Messianic line, even became a, 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 a grandmother, great-grandmother to King David and all the way down to King Jesus. You see, your faith will always be demonstrated by your works. Your faith will always be demonstrated by your works. Rahab's good deeds could not save her. but They did demonstrate a faith. They demonstrate a changed heart. 
That's what saves. That God could save her. That God could change her heart. The way that Abraham received salvation by faith, the way that Rahab received salvation by faith is the same way that I have received salvation. It's by faith. And that offer is for you this morning as well. If you will repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus alone, you too can have this same story. Your story could be just like Rahab's. This woman was literally given everything new. Forgiveness for her past sins. A new purpose in life. A new family. She wasn't even considered a Canaanite anymore. She was considered an Israelite. Imagine the promises given to Abraham were now given to this woman. It's beautiful. Only God can change a heart. And what's greater than making the walls fall down is causing a house to stay standing or causing a house that had fallen to raise back up, spiritually speaking. In other passages and in so many words, uh, this year we've preached through themes like this, that, that the theme of God's presence being greater than the plans of men, the theme that obedience is greater than rebellion, that fear is, or, or faith is greater than fear, rather. But don't miss this final point that we're looking at this morning. While God would destroy a wall in, in order to provide victory, that's extraordinary. But that God would extend forgiveness to a sinful pagan such as Rahab is, I would argue, greater than the any. It's almost unbelievable. So I'd ask you this question this morning. Who are you in this story? Are you Joshua? I, th- I think not. You're not Joshua. Are you an Israelite soldier? Again, no, that's not you. While you may struggle with walking in faith and not living by fear, that's, that's not you initially. I think you're one of the pagans living in Jericho. I think that's you this morning. Perhaps your name is Rahab. Perhaps you've turned from your sinful ways. God has given you a heart of flesh, warm towards him, and you've trusted in the one true God. But maybe you're not Rahab. Maybe you're one of the Israel or the, 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 the Canaanites living in this city who are destined for destruction. You've not received this offer. I'm going to push that out to you this morning. If you've not, will you not consider it this morning? Will you celebrate this? Will you receive this, that God would rescue you? In the New Testament, there's a story that I think is very similar. It has a parallel. It has a physical and a spiritual miracle or a healing inside of it. Jesus meets a man who is paralyzed, and he has to be carried to Jesus. And it's thought that the man's injuries are, are even caused by some personal act of sin in his own life. When Jesus sees that man. He states that he has been forgiven for his sins. Jesus is accused of blasphemy. The Pharisees hear that and they lose their minds. Only God can can forgive sins. They want to kill Jesus for this. Jesus goes on to ask them whether it's easier to say one's sins are forgiven or to tell them to arise and walk. He's saying, is it easier to heal this dead person spiritually or is it it easier to heal this person's dead legs? Which, Which one's harder? Which one's more difficult? Which miracle would be greater, they're asking him. It's far more difficult, we would agree, to to forgive sins. But it's not obvious. So Jesus tells this man who has faith in him, he says, your sins are forgiven. 
And yet the people around, they, they couldn't see any evidence of a, of a forgiven life, not at this point, not this quick. So what does Jesus do? In order to prove that he can do what he said he's already done, he heals this man physically. These simple-minded men, he proves to them that he can both heal physically and spiritually. So which miracle is easier? Which miracle is greater? Church, it's the forgiveness of sins. And the secret to success at Jericho was not Joshua's military genius or, or his army's skill in warfare. Victory came because he trusted in God and obeyed his commands. The same is true for Rahab. She trusted in Yahweh and in his presence, the fact that it was with her. And sadly, at, my time, at times in my life, I've grown cold to the wonder, to this miracle that God would change my heart. I've grown cold to that. I forget how amazing it is that God would extend this forgiveness to me. That he would shed his blood for me. My sin becomes not that bad. And Jesus' sacrifice is not that great. This morning, as you compare the two, I pray that you would be re-reminded of the great grace that has been extended to us. This great miracle that he has done. Sometimes we think that it's not so, so difficult to change our hearts. And that just goes to show the depravity that God still has to un unravel and, and care for in our own hearts. Practically counting the sacrifice of Jesus as inconsequential. I'm guilty of that. So this morning we have a unique opportunity as we take communion. As we celebrate the truths of this miracle. Communion this, to this morning will serve as an opportunity for us to be reminded the sacrifice that Jesus has done for, done, made on our behalf. And we truly, I pray, will be nourished by the fact that He has changed our hearts. So in light of that, in light of this fact that the, the changed heart is the greatest miracle of all, as we go to the Lord in, in prayer and in communion, would you join me? Father, we really do thank you for this opportunity to rehash and to dig back through the truths of your word this morning, this evening, rather. We pray that that would be the case for each of us, even as we go our separate ways this evening, that we would be nourished by the fact that you have done a miracle. We were dead in our sins. We weren't just weak towards you. We were dead towards you. We were your enemies, and yet you rescued us from ourselves. You rescued us from our sins. Even when we were against you, Jesus died on the cross for us. So as we look past uh, uh, our own sin and we look toward the cross, we pray that we truly would be nourished by that. Jesus, we thank you for, your, for the, the work that you've done on our behalf. We pray that we would see you even more clearly tonight as a result of looking at you, and even in the Old Testament. We pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. All right, well, I did not bring any... Um, <clears throat> actually, I do have some communion stuff back here. I'm wondering what happened to that stuff. We saw it.